lovers and saints hope that you're having a lovely day so here it is sunday september 10th when i'm recording this and we're gonna continue with ayn rand's capitalism the unknown deal we're still in the essay what is capitalism and uh we're on check we're on page eight so we'll see how far we get i am just uh basically in my political economy class we are on the last week third week of talking about adam smith so we started out with theory of moral sentiments and then went on to the wealth of nations which is divided up into like books or sections one through five so the first actual book or collection is uh, the first three and then the second one which is what we're on this week um is books four and five so but we're just reading selections from them because i would say that adam smith is not a quick read but the books if you do get the penguin edition i don't know what other editions there are but if you get the penguin one the introductions are pretty good so that said um otherwise i'm just um basically working on uh, i have my own project that i'm working on basically and today was the fourth day i worked on it i really like getting up in the morning and just getting straight to work um, for a few hours on my project and uh, maybe I'll share a bit about that as it uh, goes along but yeah I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it during the weekend though because you know my teaching duties and yeah basically <laughs> basically just that just prepping for classes and grading papers and things like that so the weekends seem to be more for like individual academic work and um yeah and then I've just been reading for my class but as I said Adam Smith for me at least is kind of slow going he is just uh I think he goes kind of back and forth between being super detailed and meticulous well maybe not back and forth but at the same time it's somewhat like general and his opinion so there's a bit of bias in it so I don't know but it is interesting like right now I'm reading a section on his opinions on the university specifically how theology and the church kind of started the university or the origin of universities were for people studying theology um and uh but to perhaps ill effects for philosophy the course of philosophy smith seems to really like the scientific kind of route and so he sort of disparages like metaphysics and ontology and it just feels that philosophy should focus more on what we can know rather than what we can't 
so I don't know, I don't, I don't agree with that, but (laughs) that's just what he's saying, and it's just kind of interesting because, you know, even in the 18th century, I guess there was complaints about professors cutting corners and being lazy, (laughs) not great, so, so I don't know, it's just, that's the thing that I think is so, I don't know, interesting about reading works you know that are hundreds of years in the past or even even like older um it's like no complaint no phenomenon almost is new (laughs) so i don't know all right so let's go ahead and start I'm going to read actually the last little bit that I ended with because I think it kind of starts this section where she is upholding like rationalism and like the human mind. In order to sustain its life, every living species has to follow a certain course of action required by its nature. The action required to sustain human life is primarily intellectual. Everything man needs has to be discovered by his mind and produced by his effort. Production is the application of reason to the problem of survival. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, even Adam Smith says, which I feel like Ayn Rand might, you know, like, he would be in her purview. Even Adam Smith says that you know, a natural propensity is to, um, what is it? What are the three words? To truck, borrow, and no, to truck, exchange, and I mean, that's what about it. Because it's, I think it's so interesting that he would focus on something so specific. says that so this is uh the um the wealth of nations chapter two of i think book one so it says this division of labor from which you know that idea is is so popular in adam smith because and i don't he didn't really i was reading the introduction he kind of like didn't necessarily come up with that but maybe he just like fleshed it out in a way that life was more compelling um but it was so important because it creates progress and growth in a nation like he's most interested in increasing the wealth of a nation and like (laughs) i just say that because like it's called the wealth of nations and uh one way to do this is to mass produce which he says that it doesn't exactly lead to ha- individual happiness for those people working in a factory. And so therefore we have government, the government and society has to compensate for that by entertainment and appropriate wages and even like forced education. Um, so people that are working in the factories don't become like 
you know, unhappy and, uh, I don't want to use the word he used because it's kind of insulting, but, um, blank in their minds. <laughs> so, okay, maybe that's fine. Okay, so anyway, this division of labor which, from which so many advantages are derived is not originally the effect of any human wisdom which foresees and intends that general opulence to which it gives occasion. It is the necessary, though very slow and gradual consequence of a certain propensity in human nature, which has in view no such extensive utility. The propensity to truck barter in exchange, one thing for another. Okay, that's why I was forgetting barter. Um, so, and he says that, so basically it's a human sort of result from, to truck barter in exchange, from our faculties of reason and speech. So we are naturally rational people, and then here Smith is uh, comparing human beings to like non-human animals, saying that they don't necessarily have that. But we have just a natural need, right, for comfortable sleep, shelter, food, water, <coughs> etc and uh, it's hard to be self-sustaining and do all the things like make our house make our bed you know um, farm the wheat and and uh, you know grind it up and like whatever you know to, to try to get all the raw materials for the bread that we need to make or the wine we need to make or the beer or whatever it is and so, um, and then to hunt and to, uh, you know, wash clothes without advanced technology and, uh, you know, all these things that's hard to do. So we are dependent on others and we think, well, okay, well, I like or I have the ability or the natural talent or because I've been taught it, um, I have the tendency or the propensity to, you know, do X, Y, and Z in surplus and then I can start to exchange because my neighbor has, you know, something else and then we can exchange it. So basically the whole basis of capitalism is a natural consequence of our natural propensities of reason. And that's where I feel like Ayn Rand is just like saying the same thing. But I don't think, I think it's really narrow and reductive to say that well okay maybe not <laughs> the action required to sustain human life is primarily intellectual I guess except if we're saying that non-human animals I mean how do they sur they survive and they don't have the human intellect so I don't know, just something about that just doesn't sit well with me. To, you know, privileging that over what? Over spirituality, over... Yeah, I don't know. If some men do not choose to think, they can survive only by imitating and repeating a routine of work discovered by others, but those others had to discover it, or none would have survived. If some men do not choose to think or to work, they can survive temporarily only by looting the goods produced by others, but those others had to produce them, or none would have survived. Regardless of what choice is made, <coughs> sorry, it's, uh, fall allergies, I guess. 
in this issue by any man or by any number of men. <sighs> Sorry, regardless of what, I don't know what's wrong with me. Regardless of what blind, irrational, or evil course they may choose to pursue, the fact remains that reason is man's means of survival and that men prosper or fail, survive or perish in proportion to the degree of their rationality. I mean, I don't know. There are some, like, not completely genius people who are thriving, so. Since knowledge, thinking, and rational action are are properties of the individual, since the choice to exercise his rational faculty or not depends on the individual, man's survival requires that those who think be free of the interference of those who don't. Since men are neither omniscient nor infallible, they must be free to, to agree or disagree, to cooperate or to pursue their own independent course, each according to his own rational judgment. Freedom is the fundamental requirement of a man's mind, so don't keep me down. <laughs> a rational mind does not work under compulsion. It does not subordinate its grasp of reality to anyone's orders, directives, or controls. It does not sacrifice its knowledge, its view of the truth, to anyone's opinions, threats, wishes, plans, or welfare. Such a mind may be hampered by others. It may be silenced, prescribed, imprisoned, or destroyed. It cannot be forced. A gun is not an argument. An example and symbol of this attitude is Galileo. So that's really interesting. A rational mind does not work under compulsion. I mean, I, I think she's really just focusing on, and this may be clear, but I was thinking about something else, um, that, you know, basically you could put a man's body in chains, but you can't chain his, his mind. But I mean, psychology has proven that false. <laughs> Maybe like to some extent, there is, there are the phenomenon, phenomena of brainwashing and being, and being under compulsion and being groomed and internalizing ideas. So, I mean, I think that's really focused on today, even companies like how to advertise and sway your mind so that you irrationally act even if you are irrational you have a rational mind so i think that's a bit optimistic but it is from the work and the i think i looked this how to pronounce this word up before the the inviolate that's really wrong. Integrity of such minds from the intrans intransigent innovators that all of mankind's knowledge and achievements have come. See my book, The Fountainhead. It is to such minds that mankind owes its survival. See my other book, Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> I love her confidence. The same principle applies to all men on every level of ability and ambition. To the extent that a man is guided by his rational judgment, he acts in accordance with the requirements of his nature and to that extent succeeds in achieving a human form of survival and well-being. To the extent that he acts irrationally, he acts as his own destroyer. The social recognition of man's rational nature of the connection between his survival and his use of reason is the concept of individual rights. So I think she's basically making a case against communistic forms of 
the economy. It's like, that, yeah, okay. Because um, we talked about in class, like, the difference between political arrangements and economic arrangements, and I think I still get them confused in my head. I mean, I wrote it down. I think I even mentioned it in my last video. I keep dropping things, and it makes me very unhappy. Okay. Um, it was like the very first day in class. Oh, now I have to blow my nose. Maybe I keep dropping things because my desk needs to be like three times as big. Okay, so political examples of political um, systems are militaristic, dictatorship, a republic, a democracy, a monarchy, fascism, and then examples of economic systems, capitalism, socialism, communism, feudalism, etc. So there you go. So basically, I think she is making a case against the economic system of communism or any sort of situation where you have an authoritative mind trying to well, being compulsory and hindering individuals from using their rationality. So we need a system, she's saying, that allows for freedom and allows for freedom of, well, especially freedom of thought, because that's going to be the only way that, that is the way that we survive. And otherwise, as she says, he acts as his own destroyer. I shall remind you that rights are a moral principle defining and sanctioning a man's freedom of action in a social context, that they are derived from man's nature as a rational being and represent, so we need freedom of action in a social context, I think that's really important, that they are derived from man's nature as a rational being and represent a necessary condition of this particular mode of survival. I shall remind you also that the right to life is the source of all rights, including the right to property. I mean, I think something that could be said here is that freedom as affecting happiness and well-being and success and progress is on a continuum. I mean, there are extremes of freedom and non-freedom, right? And so where, like what, on what point in that continuum between the collective and the individual is most productive for happiness, well-being, and progress? And I think that's where different economic systems divide. In regard to political economy, this last requires special emphasis. Man has to work and produce in order to support his life. He has to support his life by his own effort and by the guidance of his own mind. If he cannot dispose of the product of his effort, he cannot dispose of his effort. 
If he cannot dispose of his effort, he cannot dispose of his life. Without property rights, no other rights can be practiced. That's an interesting focus. The focus of property rights. I just read something um, journalistic about that, but... Now, bearing these facts in mind, consider the question of what social system is appropriate to man. A social system is a set of moral, political, economic principles embodied in a society's laws, institutions, and government, which determine the relationships, the terms of association among the men living in a given geographical area. It is obvious that these terms and relationships depend on an identification of man's nature, that they would be different if they pertain to a society of rational beings or a colony of ants. So what is appropriate to human beings based on our propensities and our human nature? I think that's the same kind of approach that Adam Smith is taking. It is obvious that they will be radically different if men deal with one another as free and dependent individuals on the premise that every man is an end in itself or as members of a pack, each regarding the others as the means to his ends and to the ends of the pack as a whole. There are only two fundamental questions or two aspects of the same question that determine the nature of any social system. Does a social system recognize individual rights? And does a social system ban physical force from human relationships? The answer to the second question is the practical implication of the answer to the first. Oh, that's interesting. So if we, if we lean more towards a collective, then that creates space for violence. It's kind of like, I think a reductive way of kind of saying that, or a way of summarizing. <clears throat> Is man a sovereign individual who owes, owns his person? his mind, his life, his work, and his pro its products, or is he the property of the tribe? Going back to the tribe that she is harping on again. The state, this, okay, so the tribe, parentheses, the state, the society, the collective, that may dispose of him in any way it pleases, that may dictate his conventions, prescribe the course of his life, control his work, and expropriate his, his products. Does man have the right to exist for his own sake, or is he born in bondage as an indentured servant who must keep buying his life by serving the tribe but can never acquire it free and clear? I mean, part of this seems like semantics. Does the collective always mean slavery and bondage? I mean, it's just the, it's the kind of thing where, you know, the same conversation as like, just pa is power always violent or can it be pr um, productive? Or is capitalism always manipulative and filled with greed and taking advantage of others? Or does it work in like a symbiotic relationship to the consumer's needs? So... I don't know. This is the, of course, you know, she comes from an actual, a country that actually practiced communism. And I can understand that that was her experience. So that's really where she's speaking from. This is the first question to answer. The rest is consequences and practical implementations. 
The basic issue is only is man free. In mankind's, it was starting to sound like existentialism and bouvoir. <laughs> In mankind's history, capitalism is the only system that answers yes. Capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. Again, um, I mean, continuums. The recognition of individual rights entails the banishment of physical force from human relationships. Basically, rights can be violated only by means of force. In a capitalist society, no man or group may initiate the use of physical force against others. The only function of the government in such a society is the task of protecting man's rights, the task of protecting him from physical force. The government acts as the agent of man's right of self-defense and may use force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use. Thus, the government is the means of placing the retali retaliatory use of force under objective control. And it's interesting that first she brings up um, the freedom of the mind and then now the protection of the body. It is the basic metaphysical fact of man's nature, the connection between his survival and his use of reason that capitalism recognizes and protects. The metaphysical fact of man's nature, survival and reason. In a capitalist society, all human relationships are voluntary. Men are free to cooperate or not, to deal with one another or not, as their own individual judgments, convictions, and interests dictate. They can deal with one another only in terms of and by means of reason, i.e. by means of discussion, persuasion, and contractual agreement, by voluntary choice to mutual benefit. The right to agree with others is not a problem in any society. It is the right to disagree that is crucial. It is the institution of private property that protects and implements the right to disagree, and thus keeps the road open to man's most valuable attribute, valuable personally, socially, and objectively, the creative mind. I mean, it's not like... So this gets into, I think, politics because you have to have a political arrangement in addition to an economic arrangement. And you can have capitalism connected to a dictatorship. You can have capitalism dictated, um, connected to, what would be another option? Let me look back at the list. What would be interesting? A militaristic political um, arrangement or a democratic or a republic. You could have capitalism and fascism work together. So you can't just say, you can't just talk about capitalism. And I don't think, like the next sentence is, this is the cardinal difference between capitalism and collectivism. Well, collectivism is a part of political arrangements as well. So, I think that the danger of this is that she's making it seem really simple and straightforward, and it's slightly more complicated. 
The power that determines the establishment, the changes, the evolution, and the destruction of social systems is philosophy. The role of chance, accident, or tradition in this context is the same as their role in the life of an individual. Their power stands in inverse ratio to the power of a culture's or an individual's philosophical equipment and grows as philosophy collapses. I need to read that again. The power that determines the establishment is philosophy. So their power, so the power of chance, accident, or tradition stands in inverse ratio. So if philosophy grows then chance decreases accident increase decreases and tradition decreases so philosophy offers order certainty and innovation maybe it is therefore by reference to philosophy that care that the character of a social system has to be defined in about evaluated. Corresponding to the four branches of philosophy, the four keystones of capitalism are, metaphysically, the requirements of man's nature and survival, epistemologically, reason, ethically, individual rights, politically, freedom. This, in substance, is the base of the proper approach to political economy and to an understanding of capitalism, not the tribal premise inherited from the prehistorical tradition. So I guess for Ayn Rand, she would want capitalism paired with the political system that allowed the most freedom. And I would ask, is that possible to even like have? Okay, so I guess the political system that could be most realistically possible but I don't think it would, but I think that version, that um, pairing would include elements and aspects of the tribe. And so I would like Ayn Rand to address what aspects of collectivism and tribal thought like maybe are unavoidable or somewhat productive. That's what I would like to hear. This in substance is the base of the proper approach to political economy and to an understanding of capitalism, not the tribal premise inherited from prehistorical traditions. So I guess she doesn't wax nostalgic over the ancients like some postmodernists do, I guess. I mean, the practical justification of, I'm not saying that she's a postmodernist, the practical justification of capitalism does not lie, oh and she has a footnote, for a fuller discussion of the subject, see my article, The Nature of Government, of course. The practical justification of capitalism does not lie in the collectivist claim that it affects the best allocation of natural resources. Man is not a rational resource, sorry, a national resource, did I say that? wrong the first like both times 
In a collective, it's claimed that it affects the best allocation of national resources. Man is not a national resource, and neither is his mind. And without the creative power of man's intelligence, raw materials remain just so many useless raw materials. So that's why I think she would depart from Adam Smith, because Adam Smith starts out the theory of moral sentiments and maybe, well, definitely the theory of moral sentiments in a way where you'd think he was moving toward like socialism in a way that like G.A. Cohen would give a thumbs up to. (laughs) And Ayn Rand doesn't want any of that. So, So there's her departure from Adam Smith, maybe. The moral justification of capitalism does not lie in the altruist claim, oh yeah, she hates altruism, that it, or she doesn't think that it's like um, a true, like a true reality. I don't know, she just doesn't like it. <laughs> that it represents the best way to achieve the common good. It is true that capitalism does, if that catchphrase has any meaning, but this is merely a secondary consequence. The moral justification of capitalism lies in the fact that it is the only system consonant with man's rational nature, that it protects man's survival qua man, and that its ruling principle is justice. So if it does something for the common good, if it has a collective effect, well, that's, you know, that's fine, but that's not like what we need to focus on. Every social system is based explicitly or implicitly on some theory of ethics. The tribal notion of the common good has served as the moral justification of most social systems and of all tyrannies in history. The degree of a society's enslavement or freedom corresponded to the degree to which that tribal slogan was invoked or ignored. The common good or the public interest is an undefined and undefinable concept. There is no such entity as the tribe or the public. The tribe or the public or society is only a number of individual men. Nothing can be good for the tribe as such. Good and value pertain only to a living organism, to an individual living organism, not to a disembodied aggregate of relationships. I mean, I don't know. We kind of need each other. And like, what about belongingness and like the well-being that comes from the social, which requires submission to some extent the common good is a meaningless concept unless taken literally in which case its only possible meaning is the sum of the good of all the individual men involved but in that case the concept is meaningless as a moral criterion it leaves open the question of what is the good of individual men and how does it determine it how does one determine it it is not however in its literal meaning that that concept is generally used. It is accepted precisely for its elastic, undefinable, mystical character, which serves not as a moral guide, but as an escape from morality. Since the good is not applicable to the disembodied, it becomes a moral blank check for those who attempt to embody it. So you can just do anything. When the common good of a society is regarded as something apart from and superior to the individual good of its members, it means that the good of some men takes precedence over the good of others. With these others consigned to the status of sacrificial animals. I mean, I 
I see where she's going with that. It is tacitly assumed in such cases that the common good means the good of the majority or the good of the minority in power as against the minority or the individual. Observe the significant fact that the assumption is tacit. Even the most collectivized mentalities seem to sense the impossibility of justifying it morally. But the good of the majority too is only a pretense and a delusion since in fact the violation of an individual's rights means the abrogation of all rights. It delivers the helpless majority into the power of any gang that proclaims itself to be the voice of society and proceeds to rule by means of physical force until disposed by another gang employing the same means. I mean, okay, I find this part very convincing, actually. <laughs> because, I mean, it is a cause for rebellion when there's, when there's a moral dictate put on an injunction from a government or any kind of institution and uh, individuals are feeling like it's riskier or they don't want to participate because it could uh, you know endanger them in some way and it is uh, it starts to seem pretty manipulative and that it's coming from somewhere um and then, you know, what do you do? Because you can't consent to self-violation. If one begins by defining the good of individual men, one will accept as proper only a society in which that good is achieved and achievable. But if one begins by accepting the common good as an axiom and regarding individual good as its possible but not necessary consequence, not necessary in any particular case, one ends up with a gruesome absurdity as Soviet Russia, a country professedly dedicated to the common good, where with the exception of a minuscule clique of rulers, the entire population has existed in subhuman misery for over two generations. I mean, if you're going to bring up history, then... What makes the victims and worse, the observers accept this and other similar historical atrocities and still cling to the myth of the common good. The answer lies in philosophy and philosophical theories on the nature of moral values. I mean, don't read Plato's Republic because he would, but that's not his philosophy. There are, in essence, three schools of thought on the nature of the good, the intrinsic, the subjective, and the objective. The intrinsic theory holds that the good is inherent in certain things or actions as such, regardless of their context and consequences, regardless of any benefit or injury they may cause to the actors and subjects involved. It is a theory that divorces the concept of good from beneficiaries and the, the concept of value from valuer and purpose, claiming that the good is good in, by, and of itself. I mean, yeah, so I guess... The intrinsic theory is maybe something utilized by like theologians when they're trying to talk about evil, maybe. The subjectivist theory holds that the good bears no relation to the facts of reality, that it is the product of a man's consciousness created by his feelings, desires, intuitions, or whims, and that it is merely an arbitrary postulate or an emotional commitment. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I don't think she likes that one, but I kind of do. <laughs> The intrinsic theory holds that the good resides in some sort of reality independent of man's consciousness, 
The subjectivist theory holds that the good resides in man's consciousness independent of reality. I mean, can it be both, actually? Can reality be multivalent? The objective theory holds that the good is neither an attribute of the things in themselves nor of man's emotional states, but an evaluation of the facts of reality by man's consciousness according to a rational standard of value. Okay, it's an interesting alternative. Rational in this case, in this context means derived from the facts of reality and validated by a process of reason. The objective theory holds that the good is an aspect of reality in relation to man and that it must be discovered, not invented by man. Fundamental to an objective theory of values is the question of value to whom and for what. An objective theory does not permit con context dropping or context concept stealing. It does not permit the separation of value from purpose, of the good from beneficiaries, and of man's actions from reason. Of all the social systems in mankind's history, capitalism is the only system based on an objective theory of values. So, uh, intrinsic is in disregard of the consequences. The objective is based on reality. So are we co-creating reality? in the objective, the objectivist perspective. Because isn't the reality a thing in itself? Is there a reality outside of a thing in itself? See, like now I feel like I would be less confused if I would read more Kant. Okay, so that would be a section that I would want to read again <laughs> on my own, I think. Comment below if, I don't know, I mean, I don't, this is the first time I'm reading about her objectivist theory, so I guess she's going to continue to talk about it, so let's see. The intrinsic theory and the subjectivist theory, or a mixture of both, are the necessary base of every dictatorship, tyranny, or variant of the absolute state. Whether they are held consciously or subconsciously in the explicit form of a philosopher's treatise or in the implicit chaos of its echoes and in the average man's feelings, these theories make it possible for a man to believe that the good is independent of man's mind and can be achieved by physical force. I mean, I kind of understand, I mean, uh, most humanist lines of thought will privilege a reality based on human perspective but it's not I guess I mean it's subjective to humanity so it is subjective in a way right If a man believes that the good is intrinsic in certain actions, he will not hesitate to force others to perform them. 
If he believes that the human benefit or injury caused by such actions is of no significance, he will regard a sea of blood as of no significance. If he believes that the beneficiaries of such actions are irrelevant or interchangeable, he will regard wholesale slaughter as his moral duty in the service of a higher good. It is the intrinsic theory of values that produces a Robespierre, a Lenin, a Stalin, or a Hitler. It is not an accident that Eichmann was a Kantian. Oh. Damn. All right. If a man believes that the good is a matter of our, I just like wish she would mention Plato's Republic. <laughs> I feel like she should. If, or actually Adam Smith, but I don't think she's writing that kind of a essay. If a man believes that the good is a matter of arbitrary subjective choice, the issue of good or evil becomes for him an issue of my feelings or theirs. No bridge understanding or communication is possible to him. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, in her in her argument about freedom and the individual, she doesn't end up in, um, in subjectivity. So I guess that's kind of a interesting nuance. No bridge, understanding, or communication is possible to him. Reason is the only means of communication among men, and an objectively perceivable reality is their only common frame of reference. When these are invalidated, i.e. held to be irrelevant, in the field of morality, force becomes men's only way of dealing with one another. If, this, if the subjectivist wants to pursue some social ideal of his own, he feels moral, morally entitled to force men for their own good, since he feels that he is right and that there is nothing to oppose him but their misguided feelings. I mean, yeah, that's not good. Thus, in practice, the proponents of the intrinsic and the subjectivist schools meet and blend. They blend in terms of their psychoepistemology as well. By what means do the moralists of the intrinsic school discover their transcendental good, if not by means of special non-rational intuitions and revelations, i.e. by means of their feelings? It is doubtful, I mean, but the thing is, is that where are we getting this idea? I mean, where is she getting all of her assumptions? Not by observation, I would argue. Some of it comes from what she feels is right. Although, as I said, she came from a communist regime that wasn't great, so... I guess she does kind of have a lot of experience. But then also, on the other hand, sometimes we romanticize what we didn't experience and didn't grow up with, like in terms of, for instance, like religions. Like maybe you're wounded by, I don't know, Christianity, and then just like Hinduism or Buddhism seem so perfect and beautiful but then you start reading about their history and realize there's like genocide and violence (laughs) in various religions as well beyond Christianity so I don't know it is doubtful whether anyone can hold either of these theories as an actual if mistaken conviction 
but both serve as a rationalization of power lust and a rule by brute force unleashing the potential dictator and disarming his victims. The objective theory of values is the only moral theory incompatible with rule by force. Sorry, Capitalism is the only system based implicitly on an objective theory of values, and the historic tragedy is that this has never been made explicit. Okay, so I'm going to stop there because uh, I think I rambled too long in the beginning. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go back and highlight some of this stuff on my own so I can... Otherwise, like my mind just doesn't process it as read. But thank you so much for, um, you know, reading along with me and figuring this text out. I think that there are going to be, yeah, we're on page 15 and it ends on 29. So there will be a few more videos on this. Thanks everyone. Have a great day, evening, week.